I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now, let's get started. our first episode, so I really wanted to choose a topic that everyone has big feels for, whether that's good or bad. And the topic is family. You know what they say, you can't choose your family. But I'm bringing you two stories where that's exactly what they've done with pretty different results. In the first story, I'm chatting to a woman in the States who drew up a contract, yes, a contract, with a fellow lawyer to have a kid together. And in the second story, I chat to an Australian woman who managed to find and fall in love with her anonymous sperm donor. I love both of these stories. They are absolutely wild. Uh, Really interesting investigation into family and nature versus nurture. So uh, let's begin. Story one, the contract baby. Meet Molly. Hi, my name is Molly Kaufman. I'm currently living in Seville, Spain, working as an English teacher, and I'm 23. And Molly's mom, Lisa. So my name is Lisa Kaufman, and I am a public defender, and I live in Missoula, Montana, and I'm Molly's mom. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, and I'm 61. Molly and Lisa are best friends. They finish each other's sentences. They look the same. They even have a podcast together called Enmeshed. Makes sense. I first saw these guys on TikTok. And uh, let me set the scene. Lisa, the mom, is sitting at her kitchen table in a fluffy blue dressing gown. No makeup, glasses, grey curly hair. We can't see Molly, but we can hear her asking a fairly perplexed Lisa some questions. Mom, I know you're tired, but... Do you want to talk about how you created a contract before I was born? Like, did, did you have friends that did that? Nobody. I never heard of anybody doing it ever. How many pages was it? I don't know, like 18. Oh, you told me 23. I'd have been longer with all, like, addendums and changes and additions. Do you regret it? Making the contract? Yeah. No, not at all. Do you regret choosing him as the dad? Do you wish you had a different dad? Well, that's a weird question because then I wouldn't have you. By the time I found this video, it had seriously blown up. People were all like, what the hell is a contract baby? Who's the dad? What could possibly be in the contract? Lisa had also become this sudden feminist hero, 24 years on from where it all began. But the way she sees it, it was all pretty normal stuff. Here's how she's described it. And bear with me here, it's a bit of a roller coaster. So a little bit further back, age 33 or so, <laughs> I had been sort of an up-and-coming lawyer in Chicago. I was working as a prosecutor, and I sort of snapped and decided I my life made no sense, so I sold everything I owned, jumped in my car, and just traveled and lived out of my car for a year. So I had sort of an opportunity to kind of reflect at age 33 what I wanted, what I didn't want, what were my values, what was my future, et cetera. 
Lisa ended up in the green rolling hills of Missoula, Montana, where she spent some time working. It was here that she realized she wanted to start a new life for herself with a baby. I wanted a child. I wanted to raise a child. But I started to understand I did not really want to share that with anybody, (laughs) man or woman. I just wanted to do it myself. And I think part of my bias towards a partner or my motivation to wanting to do it on my own was probably directly related to having spent so many years as a bartender and just seeing men maybe at their worst (laughs) and sort of feeling like they really don't contribute much to child rearing. And in fact, it's like having another baby around. I seriously love this. It's like Lisa saw men in the wild and was just like, ah, gross. I'll pass. No, thank you. So I had very sort of negative associations with men really having a strong, meaningful um, a, a part of raising children. So obviously I'm older now. I've obviously met and um, become friends with many functioning, healthy fathers. So I don't want this to appear as any sort of male bashing, but that's where I was at the time. So initially I had asked a friend of mine, I said, hey, can I have your sperm? (laughs) I want to have a baby. And he said, no, I don't want that responsibility. You know, I don't, even if you think you're going to do it on your own, I'm going to know there's a kid out there and I don't want a kid, right? Which makes perfect sense. So Lisa figured an anonymous sperm donor might be a better option. And so I really didn't know what to do. Um, I wasn't, I didn't have enough money to go to like a sperm bank and buy sperm. Um, I actually thought about, well, maybe I should just go out to a bar one night and get myself pregnant, right? (laughs) I mean, why not? But I sort of thought through that and sort of did more reflection and didn't really want to tell my child, I have no idea who your dad is, you know, it was some guy I met at a bar. I just, it didn't make sense. Okay, buckle in, guys. This is where it starts to get a little bit wacky. So I'm in Puerto Rico at a legal conference. And at this legal conference, there was many lawyers out to dinner one night at a large table, probably 12 of us. And people were drinking and very jocular and having a good time. And the subject of kids came up. And there was a guy at the end of the table, a lawyer, who said, I have a girlfriend of 15 years. She doesn't want kids. And I really want kids. And so I yell out from the other side of the table, sort of, you know, laughing and joking around. Hey, I really want a kid and I don't want to husband, right? And everybody laughs and says, you two should get together. And, you know, that was the end of it. Well, after the conference, that lawyer called me and said, are you serious? Do you really want to do something like that? The lawyer, who we'll call Tom, lived in Las Vegas, out in the desert. Lisa lived in the country in Montana, lush green mountains. They were worlds apart. And remember, this is 1998, guys. There's no social media and stuff like email was totally primitive. So Lisa and Tom had this logistical nightmare ahead of them. How would they raise a kid together thousands of miles apart? For Lisa, she kind of hoped that this meant once the baby arrived, he'd just sort of leave them alone. My specific question to him was, why would you want to have a child with somebody who lives so far away knowing that I'm not moving where you live. And his answer was as follows. (laughs) Just as a painter paints a painting, I want to leave my legacy on the world. And I thought, perfect. 
He's egocentric. He's narcissistic. He just wants, you know, me to send him Christmas cards and he'll give me money. I thought I'm going to have the best of all worlds, right? I'm going to get child support. I'm going to get a guy who's not invested really in spending time with my kid. And I just got to be nice to him and send him Christmas cards. So, so I'm as guilty, I suppose, on some level as he was of being narcissistic and driven by my own ego. Um, so we made a plan, right? A one-year plan where we would meet when I was ovulating <laughs> at various cities around the United States. And just when you thought that this couldn't get any more logistical, Lisa said that for both her and Tom, it was quite a convenient little tax write-off. No, I don't know about your tax system in Australia, but you can write off business expenses in the United States. So kind of do it all in one weekend, right? Have sex, try to have a baby, go to a legal seminar, and then write it off in your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I really love this story, right? Lisa is this bullshy Chicago lawyer who could just not have approached motherhood in a more practical way. But, you know, don't be fooled into thinking it was coming from a place of dispassion or coldness. Lisa could just see what was happening. She was getting older. She had to sort it out. Now, keep in mind, at the time, I was 38. And so the idea that I would get pregnant was, of course, up to the powers that be. So the plan was made and the dates were set. They figured out what conferences were on and when and where and how they could meet up. It was like a tour of platonic baby-making sex across America between two consenting adults. First stop, Los Angeles. We had our first get-together. It was in Los Angeles. It was a legal seminar. And we got together, and afterwards, I realized, oh, my God, I don't even like this guy. The sex was horrible. I'm a horrible person. You can't bring a baby into the world like this. This is terrible karma. Who, who am I, right? So I called him and said, I'm not doing this. This was a dumb idea. This was stupid. I got excited about the idea of having a kid and that you were going to pay me child support. And I said, but, you know, the whole energy surrounding this just feels like, again, bad karma, um, just not consistent with love and producing a child. And he, he cried and we talked. And so I basically ended it. And then three weeks later, I was pregnant. Yep. The plan had worked maybe a little too well. This well-planned one-night stand had suddenly become a lifelong partnership because inside Lisa was little contract baby Molly. Not that Tom knew that just yet. I got pregnant and I had already told him no. So now I had a big decision. Do I now reach out to him again and say I'm pregnant? Because now I'm free. I don't have to tell him. I can just have this baby. This is what I always wanted. I'm pregnant and the person's already, you know, he lived far away and he didn't know and I didn't have to tell him. So I had to go to counseling, you know, and try to figure that out and sort through it. And the counselor at the time, which I don't know if it would be a different advice now. So that would have been 1998. So 1998, the, the psychological sort of field of study was that Knowing a dad, even if it's an icky dad, was better than not knowing a dad. So she basically advised me that you can't bring a baby into this world and deny her the opportunity to know her father. 
you know, one, she may just romanticize her whole life of who this person might have been, and that's going to create issues, right? Or she's going to be mad at you, or, you know, it's not fair. She has the right to know who her father is. And so sort of based on that advice, I called him and said, guess what? I'm pregnant. At that point, Lisa knew that she was locked in. The contract that had started as a joke over dinner had now turned into a reality. And this man, this stranger, really, who she didn't like that much, well, she was now going to have to invite him in on one of the most intimate relationships of her life. The contract said so. So he got very excited. He did. He acted like a normal, you know, dad-to-be Um He wanted me to take pictures every month of my stomach as it was growing, you know. But the more we communicated, so there was, um, I don't remember if there was internet then, but there was email because most of our communication was through email just because we were busy lawyers. We're both busy. So, Um, you know, he, the more we communicated over the nine months I was pregnant, the, the more I realized how much I did not like him. And the more, and when his girlfriend dumped him, he sort of turned to me more, I, as I said earlier, was sort of this new notion that maybe we could be a partners together. I was not interested at all. So because of that, and because of my own issues, I was really mean to him. I mean, you know, I was just mean. Um, and not mean like... Um, like angry mean, just like very monosyllabic in my answers, very unresponsive to his emails, refused to take pictures of my stomach and said that was too invasive. I just, you know, I just, I didn't like him. You can really start to feel the suffocating nature of the arrangement creeping into Lisa's voice. I think back to my own pregnancy and kind of riding that crazy wave of new experiences. It was really just me and my body and my baby I can't imagine what it was like having this guy who totally gives you the ick emailing every day, wanting to shack up together, talk about relationships, wanting pictures of your stomach, this half-naked body, you know, it just, it feels really yuck. Relationship with Thomas side, though, Lisa enjoyed a delicious pregnancy with Molly. I've seen pictures of Lisa pregnant and she just looks so happy, massive smile across her face, hands resting on her belly. She looks like a woman ready to be a mother, just maybe not ready to be someone's partner, however platonic. When it was time to have Molly, um, I was at the hospital. I called him and told him I was going into labor. So now he's, you know, 1,500 miles away. So he jumps on a plane. He wants to be there. My birthing plan specifically said I don't want any men in the delivery room. (laughs) And again, it's not a male bashing thing. It's more my issues. I just wanted to be able to deliver a child and not feel like I had to put my lipstick on, you know, or cover myself up or something. I just wanted to enjoy the experience. And so that created some issues because he flew in and wanted to come into the hospital delivery room. They wouldn't let him in because my birthing plan said no men were allowed. After 11 hours of labour, the birth ended up being an emergency C-section and Molly Shah Kaufman was born at 7.37pm on the 16th of January 1999, weighing 7 pounds, 7 ounces. Lisa was over the moon. Her little girl was finally here, but a whole new labor of love was just beginning. Just had an emergency C-section. 
I'm in pain. You know, for those of you who don't know, I mean, you can't sneeze or cough or sit up or do anything because your stomach hurts so much from the, the surgery, right? Not from the delivery. And, um, and so I'm laying there, and all of a sudden, the door of my room busts open, and he comes in with two other people who, like, grab my arm and jab a, a needle into my arm, and they're drawing blood, and I'm like, who, what are you? Who are you? It was, was horrible. It was traumatic. He was doing a DNA test to make sure it was his kid. And I just thought, you know, that is so representative of the type of person you are. I have no sense of how poor that timing was, you know. You could have just asked me, and I would have, like, we could have arranged to have it happen in a much more conducive way. Of course, the DNA test proved accurate, and Lisa and Tom both agreed that the baby contract would now come into play. But wow, huh? What a place to start from. So you're probably wondering what a baby contract looks like. And to be honest, I wondered the same thing. So I asked Lisa to describe the document to me. So the contract was really an exercise of stupidity between two lawyers. And you can't really, you can't really make a contract to have a baby together, right? And I mean, we're trying to figure out, there's such silly stuff in the contract. Like he was very concerned that she might get a tattoo before age 16. So in the contract, it was like, she can't get a tattoo. And we we weren't even pregnant yet, right? And we're trying to anticipate all the things in parenting that we both had either heard of or were concerned about or scared about to put into this contract. But that's not to say that there weren't clear contract stipulations. For example, if it was a girl, it would have my last name. If it was a boy, it would have his last name. Um, We had this whole contract about visitation, right? That, you know, with 48 hours notice, he could tell me that he had a, he was coming to Missoula and wanted to see the baby. And, you know, I had to accept that and where he would stay and how that would work. And I mean, we had all these details, very sterile, very lawyerish, and not at all aware of the emotional experience of having a child and, and what that would entail, right? There's something really sweet about the contract, like This documenting of that moment that exists just before parenthood, the quiet hours before sunrise where you take a guess at what's around the corner without really knowing anything. The things that seem important, tattoos and visiting hours, pretty quickly fade away to the reality of something new that you didn't expect. Sleepless nights, milk, so much milk, and this kind of awkwardness of navigating early days. And this awkwardness was made a zillion times harder for Lisa because she was trying to do this cross-country with a guy she barely knew. When she was three months old, he paid for me to take her down to Las Vegas to spend the weekend at his house so he could be with her. So he hadn't seen her those first three months. So we go down there. Now, imagine... I'm on a plane. I'm by myself. I've got a three-month-old. I've got the diaper bag. I'm breastfeeding. I've, I've put my breast milk on dry ice so that he could have an opportunity to nurse her with a bottle, right? We were going to try it. Um, you know, my clothes, the stroller, everything. And I fly out there and um, he picks me up from the airport. And here's another example of like some of the reasons why I started to not like him. He would pick me up at the airport and just sit in the car and honk the horn. 
and raise the hood with the button in the car. And I'd be like, baby's falling off my arm and I'm trying to get the suitcase in the trunk and get the milk and the whatever. And, you know, I'd get in the car, I'd get in the back seat because I put her in the car. I bring the car seat. I, maybe he had a car seat. I put her in the car seat. I get in the back seat. So it's like the chauffeur was picking us up, you know. He didn't get out. He didn't say hi to her. He didn't hug her. He didn't help me with anything, you know. I know that every parent listening to this is just cringing and going, oh my God, this sounds like a nightmare. But Lisa was amazing. She stuck in there and kept going. I kept trying to make excuses for his behavior, right? So we get to his house and kind of settle in. I got a little bedroom. She has a little bedroom. He has a little crib for her. Lovely, right? Everything. And I'm there for, you know, 48 hours. And he says, oh, by the way, I have to go work out. I'll be back in two hours. Oh, I have to go play the piano tonight at such and such club. Um, I'll be back at nine. Uh, I mean, it was like a nightmare. (laughs) Like, why am I down here bringing in this kid? The milk went bad because he never had time enough to sit down and feed her, you know. So we tried that maybe two or three times. And I said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. (laughs) You want to see her, you can come to Missoula, Montana and see her. So that was kind of the first year. Things didn't get better. Most parents battle it out that first year and and it's okay. There's always that push and pull of old life and new life, of trying to maintain some connection with your old routine. And, you know, yeah, it's usually the mother that ends up kind of buckling first. Buckling isn't the right word. Um, Molding, surrendering. Anyway, that's what happened for Lisa. She took to motherhood with that signature pragmatic steez and she and Molly became best friends. Tom, on the other hand, didn't really find his feet as a dad. And as Molly started to grow up, their relationship had become quite strained. And to tell you about that, here's the contract baby herself, the now adult Molly. Yeah, so my dad and I were never close. Like, the way I always described it was he felt like that weird uncle when you go to family events. It's like, go say hi to him. Go hang out with him. You're like, why? I don't, I don't know what to talk about with him. Molly tries really hard to be diplomatic about her dad, but you can tell pretty much straight away that the two of them just really aren't close. When I was a little kid, I felt very, like, handcuffed to hang out with him because if he would—I have memories of him coming to Missoula, so he would come to, like, my safe haven, my little—you know, Missoula, Montana is, like, 80,000 people. It's it's beautiful nature compared to, like, Las Vegas where— I found out when I was a kid, like, oh, don't go outside in summer because you get heat stroke. You know, like, Las Vegas was literally hell. (laughs) Like, like it was, you'll burn alive. This really clear line starts to become apparent with Molly, this delineation between life with mom and life with dad. Montana with mom was cool, safe, quiet, suburban. It was home. Las Vegas with dad, on the other hand, was frantic and hot and scary and full of step-siblings and a stepmom, and it really wasn't home. Molly remembers clearly calling her mom and crying that she just wanted to go back to Montana. I got my first cell phone when I was in third grade, which obviously was ahead of all my peers, but my mom's like, you need a cell phone because you go to your dad and I want you to have a way to communicate with me. But as a kid, I was like, haha, I have a cell phone. You know, it was a flip phone. It wasn't that impressive. And when I was, I have a really distinct memory of when I was six years old, my dad had, re, or not remarried, he was never married before. My dad had married my stepmom by this time. She had three kids. So now when I went to Vegas, it was my dad, my stepmom, and three step-siblings. 
that were fine. They all were around my age, but I was used to being a only child single mom, you know? I missed the attention and I obviously just missed my mom. Like I didn't feel like I fit in. I felt very out of place. I didn't want to be there. And so when I was six years old, I like went into the bathroom and I called my mom sobbing. I'm like, I hate it here. I hate these people. They're dumb. They're stupid. They're, I, I was literally calling my stepsister that was like a year and a half younger than me, childish. I think I was six, you know? I just did not vibe with anyone. I didn't relate to anyone. I didn't like anyone there. What Molly didn't realize is that everyone in the house could hear her on the phone. And they held that conversation over my head for years. For years, they'd be like, you don't want to be here. We know you don't want to be here. You hate us. This is what you said about this kid on that phone call. So they like all listened through the door when I was six years old to a phone call with my mom who raised me. And so there was a weird amount of animosity with my step family because I'm, they're like, you're, you're not good at being a sibling. You're not good at sharing. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm not. I don't want to be here. This went on for years. Molly would go to her dad's, hate it, come home to her mom and try and settle back into her normal life. It was a cycle that didn't really seem to suit anyone or make anyone happy. Lisa, like any mom, would fret sending her daughter away. Tom had a whole new family that was kind of interrupted every time Molly would visit and Molly, well, she hated the whole arrangement. It seems like the only thing keeping this together was the contract, that bloody contract. Here's Lisa again. It felt horrible. It was upsetting. I used to feel hysterical about wanting just to jump on a plane and go get her. Thank goodness I had friends that would talk me off the ledge. And I think Molly would agree with the following. I should probably get an Academy Award because never, never in all those years did I say to her, I know he's such an ass, you know, I get it. I see why you hate him. I was always like, but it's your dad and he's trying. And so let's give it that old college try and just it'll be over in a week and I'll still be here. And I love you. And you always have my home in Montana and everything's going to be great. By the time Molly reached her early teens, the strain of the contract arrangement was being felt fiercely by all. Molly tells me about the exact moment that it all started to crumble. And then when I was like 12, he was visiting me in Montana. And he's like, I feel like you don't want to hang out with me. I feel like you don't like me. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it up to you now. I've been kind of forcing you to visit me or me visit you, but I'm going to leave the decision up to you. And I was like, okay, goodbye. Obviously that he didn't, that didn't feel very good to him. And then when I was 14, the entire step family and him went on a cruise and they invited me to it. And I was like, I'll go on a cruise. Woo. And then of course there was drama on the cruise. Like I physically ran away from him, like in the middle of a crowded cruise deck. And he's like, you can't run away from me in like in public. And I'm like, I don't like you still. Nothing has changed. He came to my high school graduation, but I sent the invitation to my stepmom because him and my stepmom are just getting divorced. And I like, I definitely did it out of spite. I was like, I'm inviting her, not you. And then he's like, well, I know about the invitation, so I'm coming. And I was like, no, please don't come. When Molly went off to college, which the contract outlined that her dad would pay for, the wheels really began to fall off. When I went to college, he had like certain stipulations of like why he would help pay for college. And I had to, like, call him once a week and see him twice a semester. And, of course, I did not call him because I don't call anyone except my mom. I'm not calling anyone on the phone. So we finally let go of that. And I saw him twice my first semester of college. And then my second semester, I had way too many finals going on. And basically, after the summer of my freshman year of college, 
you know, I was I was bartering. I was like, please give me more money because they keep hiking it up because you make too much. And he's like, be a better kid. And I was like, I don't wanna. And then he said, have a nice life. And he hung up. And that's the last time we talked. That's when I was 19. There you go. Molly's 23. And you can kind of hear how she's trying to turn this pretty painful memory into something funny and lighthearted. But it's it's not really. I can't imagine what it feels like for your dad to say, have a nice life and hang up. But, and, you know, unpopular opinion, my heart still aches for Tom, Molly's dad. You don't know whether to, like, hate him for being manipulative and creating these weird rules around money or to feel heartbroken for this relationship that, despite him trying, just didn't work out. Remember Lisa saying that he'd cried when she suggested that they don't have a kid together? He really wanted this. Since they last spoke in 2020, Molly and Tom seem to have pretty much just drifted away, giving each other space that they both clearly need. Maybe the tides of life will bring them back together one day. Maybe they won't. He emailed me uh, Thanksgiving 2020. He's like, happy Thanksgiving. And I was like, okay. Uh, (laughs) And he like texted me once like on my birthday. He's like, oh, I'm going to send you photos when you're a kid. And then he didn't. So like, I haven't responded but also both time he's reached out have been, like, very lackluster. And I'm like, this doesn't warrant a response, my friend. I've thought a lot about what it must be like to go viral for a video where you essentially out your own father as being little more than a sperm donor. Because surely that's not how Tom saw himself, an exaggerated character of this selfish, out-of-touch loser dad. But it seems that for Molly, this is how he's cemented in her mind. My dad's always been a caricature. Like, honestly, I grew up in Missoula, Montana, raised by this Jewish woman from Chicago. Like, we already stuck out as sore thumbs. And so to add on top that I had this, like, random dad that would, like, roll into town who, like, had lots of money and then would leave abruptly or I would leave for a weekend to go fly to Las Vegas to visit him. Like, he's always been something I have to, like, explain to people. You know, people my entire life think he's dead because I'm like, oh, me and my mom, me and my mom, me and my mom. And And then if they happen to, like mention my dad or like try to mention him I'm like oh yeah he's alive like you can ask about him but like what do you want to know and so maybe it's a defense mechanism maybe I'm putting up a wall but it just doesn't feel any different like yeah do I want to hear about my contraceptive story multiple times probably not as I get older I do feel bad for my dad the more I learn about it from a less biased and a less child point of view I feel bad he wanted a kid You know, and I have evidence for my life of him, like, trying to, like, show he was a caring dad. But on paper and through, like, my childish lens of life, I'm like, who is this guy? Get him away from me. Lisa saw all of this unfolding, like a slow-motion car crash, and tells me how hard she worked to ensure that this didn't shape how Molly was going to see men for the rest of her life. Distant, manipulative, kind of blundering through. In the interview, Molly is really insistent that she hasn't been negatively impacted by this relationship with Tom, and it was just so sweet to hear how happy that made Lisa. I'm just happy to hear that I was able to raise you with enough positive male influences, which I tried very hard to do. I tried very hard to sort of ingratiate myself or co-op other people's families that had really healthy, functioning fathers (laughs) so she could learn that there are nice men in the world. My last question was for Lisa. If she could go back in time and redo the contract, what would be the clause that she would be really sure to include? Maybe that he should have gone to therapy 
when I was pregnant and be working closely with a therapist on how to be a long distance dad and make it a positive experience for both the child as she's growing up as well as him with the limitations of his work and geography. Um, I think it, you know, it could have worked. I mean, you know, she could have had this long distance dad that she would look forward to seeing and was maybe kind of bummed she didn't get to see that often, but I think she would have been fine with that if he'd been any sort of a dad, right? So I think maybe that I would have done different. I feel like there's these two edges of parenthood. In one corner, we have the romance and the emotion, the real touchy-feely stuff. And then in the other corner, there's the realities, the chores and the money and the logistics. For most of us, we start out with the romance and later on, the logistics will come crashing down like a big clap of thunder. For Lisa and Tom, however, they started at the other end. They started with the chores and the money and the logistics And then they had to kind of work their way backwards to the touchy-feely stuff. So I agree with Lisa. Therapy would have been a great addition, adding some padding to what ended up being a very pointy arrangement, a clause for compassion, if you will, for their contract baby, Molly. Story two. Please, don't call it a fairy tale. Quick trigger warning on this story, guys. This story speaks a lot about infant loss. If this is something that's going to be painful for you, please skip ahead to the next episode. It does have a happy ending, though, so if your heart can take it, please stick around. There's this gorgeous photo of our next guest, Amina Hart, on her wedding day. She stands to the far left of the frame. It's this beautiful sunny day and she's grinning from ear to ear. Amina is of West Indian heritage and has her thick black curls pinned back with a white flower. To the far right is her husband, Scott, the complete opposite, um, blonde, blue-eyed, very Nordic looking. And in the middle is their daughter, Layla. She looks to be about three or four, blonde curls, pink rosy cheeks, and is just absolutely the spitting image of both her parents. Like, you've never seen a kid with a more equal dose of genetics in your life. They look like any other family, and it's not until you hear about the three of them came to be together that you realise kind of just how incredible this moment captured really is. Because Scott and Amina didn't do things in the usual order. Scott, you see, was Amina's anonymous sperm donor. And in the most epic of rom-com storylines, they happen to meet and fall in love. My name is Amina Hart. I'm 52, going on 53 in a few weeks. And I'm based in San Remo, which is on the Basque Coast of Victoria. Uh, We are real estate agents. My husband and I have a real estate agency and also beef cattle farmers. As well, we live on a farm and breed breed cattle. So, yeah, jack of all trades, master of none. Amina is not from San Remo. She only moved there recently with Scott. Amina's from London and it was actually there that she met her first husband. I was living in London. I moved there in my mid-20s and I got married in 2003 and fell pregnant fairly quickly thereafter. 
And uh, when my son was born, my first son was born, he was profoundly disabled and uh, uh, he subsequently died 14 and a half weeks later. It was an enormous shock for Amina, compounded by the fact that there wasn't a clear reason as to why he died. There was never a diagnosis for his problems. He had profound muscle weakness and the geneticists and neurologists and various other ists were all sort of left scratching their heads as to what was wrong with him. So unfortunately, he did pass away without a diagnosis. So you can imagine that the grief around that was fairly profound. And uh, subsequently, my marriage broke down, unfortunately, and I moved back to Australia to be closer to my mum, who's always been a great support to me. And I met someone else and subsequently fell pregnant again. And the same thing happened. So you couldn't really write about it. But another little boy born with profound muscle weakness, same issues, couldn't eat, couldn't swallow. And thankfully, the geneticist from uh, Victorian Genetic Service diagnosed him quite quickly because of the recurrence. It was very apparent, was a different partner. So very apparent that the issue was with me. Two baby boys, Marlon and Louis, both struck down with the same disease. A disease that, Amina explains to me, has only a 50-50 chance of being passed on in boys. It was beyond tragic. And not only that, but she lost two relationships, a kind of secondary grief to deal with. It was a real time of reckoning for Amina. Her heart was broken in a million different ways, and she was squinting out to the horizon, trying to figure out what was next. How do you move forward? She wanted a child so badly, but at 41 years old, with a deadly genetic disorder, potentially able to be passed on, her pathway to becoming a mother was getting more and more complicated. I was also 41 by the time Louis passed away. So I was a little bit older, I was single, and I was carrying this genetic disorder that meant I couldn't just go out and fall pregnant without the fear of that happening again. So my mum sort of seeing the pain that I was living with suggested that I try IVF with a donor. And initially I was quite averse to it because I grew up as a, you know, child, single child of a single parent. So I wasn't sort of that thrilled about the prospect of going down that route, but it was pretty much the last chance saloon by then. And, you know, I always refer to myself at that time as a mother without a child. So I was I was feeling quite desperate to kind of be a mother to a living child, but at the same time, you know, it was filled with a lot of fear because of what I've been through with those two pregnancies. But she did it. With that kind of primal bravery that's locked into every mother, she did it. She found an IVF clinic in Melbourne who assisted in finding a sperm donor, and she was off and running. So ultimately, I did decide to at least pursue, you know, and investigate doing the donor thing. And I came to discover that in Victoria, there was a real shortage of donors. So when I asked to kind of have a couple of donor profiles to consider, literally there were just three that I could have. That's all that were available. Three profiles. Three men reduced down to a single page of statistics. Height, weight, health, allergies. If it's all sounding a bit cold, well, It is, and that's deliberate. Along with the laws that allow the guys to stay anonymous, the whole setup encourages distance between the mum and the sperm donor. There were three donors given to me. One 
had had no children, so I basically wrote him off because I thought he hasn't been tried and tested. No successful outcomes. It's pretty. It's pretty clinical, isn't it? And then the second one had had children born, but a child was born with what's called polydactyly, so um, extra fingers and toes, and there's no way of determining whether that's an inherited genetic issue. It can be part of um, a broader broader genetic issue or a syndrome. So I just wasn't prepared to take the chance. I thought I'm bringing enough of my own genetic issues into the mix. And then there was this one who stood out because he had four healthy children and he said he was a happy, easygoing kind of guy. He was a farmer. So I thought, you know, that's sort of salt of the earth sort of Aussie bloke. And yeah, it was a process of elimination as much as he stood out as kind of the preference when I looked at it that way. When I read the other two, they also so fell off the page, you know. So it was that. There were no other options. For Amina, these attributes probably didn't matter as much as they might to someone else. She only wanted one thing. No, I just didn't care. I just wanted a healthy baby. And I wanted to be happy within, and that was it. That was my parameters, and none of it mattered. I didn't care what colour hair a kid had. I didn't care what colour eyes, you know, tall, short, fat, skinny. None of it mattered. It all went out the window just because I wanted to have a healthy baby, and that was it. That was the sort of sole focus in my mind at the time. And so step one was complete. Amina chose her mystery man, an easygoing farmer with a bunch of healthy kids, And now it was time for step two, to isolate a healthy egg that didn't carry the deadly genetic disorder her sons did. Because here's the thing, while the boys have a 50-50% chance of carrying the disorder, girls don't. They either have it or they don't. So Amina's egg selection criteria was pretty intense. At 41, retrieving any eggs is difficult. And not only that, but for Amina, it also had to be a girl and it also had to be clear of this genetic mutation. And even then, they couldn't be certain. The pregnancy went by without any drama. Well, actually, there was a broken ankle, but she survived. And Amina just hoped and prayed her baby girl would be okay. The pressure and anxiety was enormous. But soon it was time to meet her daughter. Amina went into labour and Layla Nell Hart was born at Francis Perry Hospital, weighing 3.98 kilograms. She was pink and fat and healthy and blonde. What? That was unexpected. Amina finally had the chance to raise a baby with every opportunity of good health. And not only that, but Amina had been blessed with one of those amazing unicorn babies. She slept well, she ate everything, and just generally had a super easygoing temperament. She was such an easy baby. She still has that disposition now. She's just chilled. She's easygoing. She didn't cry. She didn't whine. She was never a screamer. She was always a great sleeper, always a great eater. And she remains that to this day. Okay, so now at this point of the story, we hear about the real fairy godmother in Amina's life, and that's her mum, Nell. Because shortly after the birth, Curious about Layla's shock of very blonde hair and blue eyes, Nell asked Amina if she was at all curious about the dad. It was my mum who got really curious and she sort of said, are you interested in finding out more about Layla's donor? And I said, oh, maybe down the track, you know. But my mum, you'd have to meet her to understand that she's pretty determined. 
And so she got onto Google and started to do some private investigation. You know what? I think I'd like Nell. On his profile, it said that he was a Simmental cattle breeder, which is a very specific type of cow. So she looked up the Simmental Cattle Breeders Association website. Clever. And it had, once a child is born, healthy pregnancy is completed, they will give you the Christian name, so the first name of the donor. So I knew his name was Scott and that's it. So they tell you the first name. So I had that information. Mum took that information to the uh, Simmental Cattle Breeders Association website and she found one person who was part of the association with the initial S. So she assumed that that was him. It also said on his profile that he coached country football. So she found his address on the Simmental Cattle Breeders website, which suffice it to say they've now closed down that information (laughs) because, you know, we kind of came out in public. And she found a local football club to his address So she got onto their Facebook page. This is a woman who's well into her 70s at this stage. (laughs) She got onto their Facebook page. So she basically found a photo of a blonde guy um, that she thought looked like Layla. And she goes, I reckon this is Layla's donor. And I was saying, stop, just stop. He's supposed to be anonymous at the moment. So just stop, mum, you know. But it was too late. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. Amina had seen Scott now, floored at how similar he was to Layla, and felt this magnetic pull to introduce them, not for herself, but for Layla. Through an organisation called the Voluntary Register, Amina made contact. She emailed him. She introduced herself, attached a few photos of Layla, and then she waited. Amazingly, she got a response. And so begun a few months of casual correspondence, which eventually led Scott to asking Amina if she might be interested in a visit out to his farm. He said that he'd like to meet her. So we organised a meeting. And after that, he said that he'd like to be in her life. And so we started meeting for, for lunch once every couple of weeks. And then one day I was coming down to Gippsland from Melbourne and I sort of got lost. The GPS led me astray. So we ended up meeting at a pub in Kilcunda, which overlooks the Bass Strait. And we had a drink at lunch. And then I got home. I said to mum, I said, I think he was flirting a bit with me, this guy. And she said, oh, you know, one-eyed mother as we are. She said, oh, he probably thinks you, you know, you're gorgeous, Amina. And I said, oh, I don't know. And she said, well, do you fancy him? And I said, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. Anyway, subsequently, we kind of, a few weeks later, I think we sort of declared that there was something going on to each other. And, uh, yeah, one thing led to another. And here we are. Now, Amina is many things, but I wouldn't say she's a hopeless romantic. And you know what? After the heartache she's experienced, I can understand that. But she's remarkably frank about what seems to me to be this insane kismet, this totally unlikely situation of a meet-cute where a snappy city girl meets a softly spoken farmer who's also her anonymous sperm donor and they fall in love. Like, come on, Amina, this is a rom-com script waiting to be written. But as Amina points out, it just wasn't that simple. I had to say, well, is that what what is best for Layla? Is that going to serve her if there is someone here who is effectively her biological father who's saying that he would like to be involved, 
what could that look like? And that was the biggest question for me at the time. What could that look like? Um, and we're quite a small family. It's just me and my mum. Mum's got one sister. I've got one cousin. So, and by then I knew that he had quite a big family. So I thought, well, if she's going to be invited into a family and have widened the circle of love in her life, then really I have to kind of put my own selfish needs aside and say, well, that's, I should facilitate that and where, see where it goes at least. So Amina and Scott start dating and Scott and Layla start building out a father-daughter relationship. And from what Amina tells me, for dad and daughter, it was love at first sight. Yeah, I mean, the first time we met, he invited us to his house and it was quite nerve-wracking for me. I did almost turn around a couple of times, but when we finally got there, he opened the door and it just was absolutely undeniable that she was his he just, they're absolutely identical at that time. And so I think what happened, and as he tells it, he just fell in love with her. You know, she was that little personality that was just so chilled out, so relaxed, always smiling at people, very engaged, um, very happy to go to people. Amina does say that Layla was really okay about going to people. But when she tells me this story, I do feel like there was something more precious going on with Scott and Layla than there was with other people. These felt like really special family moments right from the get-go. So the second or third time that we met, we just had a picnic somewhere that was equidistant between Melbourne and and San Remo, and she actually crawled over to him and plonked herself in his lap, completely unsolicited, and she took his water bottle and took a big sip of it and then went, ah, you know, and he just, like, it's very endearing stuff. And then there was a seagull and a bird, a dog. And I said, Layla, what noise does the dog make? And she went, woof, 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 you know. And then I said, there's a seagull. What noise does the seagull make? And she said, woof, woof, woof. And it was just sort of hilarious. But this is all while she's sitting in his lap, you know, completely relaxed. And so I can see how it might have been almost impossible not to fall in love with her because she was just one. So still very malleable, still a baby, you know. And uh, he did. As for Amina and Scott, they took things slowly. There was a fairly complex network of step-siblings and Scott's ex-wife and a couple of other complex factors in the mix. But despite all of that, their relationship continued to blossom and after just one year of dating, Scott asked Amina to marry him and they lived happily ever after. The thing about this story that really piqued my interest was this very clear theme of nature versus nurture. It's almost like an experiment. Will a baby feel an instant connection with their biological father? Because think about Molly and Tom from our previous story, for example. They didn't. If anything, Molly felt really uncomfortable around Tom. I ask Amina what she thinks. I don't think we can ever prove it. I don't know. She was that kid. She would go to anyone Uh, anyone who gave her attention, she'd reward with a big smile. And so it's impossible to really say whether it was that genetic connection between them or whether that was just the personality that she was. You know, she is still that kid. She's very social. She'll, She'll kind of relate to anyone. But I think Scott would like to think that she definitely, they had that sort of innate connection and she was drawn to him and he to her. 
When I asked Amina about herself and Scott, whether there was some kind of biological, hormonal magnetism, she laughs and says, no way. No. No, not at all. I thought he was lovely. I thought he was a lovely, warm, engaging guy. But it just wasn't, it wasn't on my radar at all to have a romantic, you know, there was still residue of the boyfriend who'd been around. Uh, I was just so immersed in being a mum and loving every minute of it. And our autonomy, you know, getting on planes and flying and showing her off to family and friends overseas and going up to Sydney. I did road trips to Sydney. I was literally just having the time of my life. You know, I was very much immersed in that life that I'd always hoped to have with a child, but hadn't had the opportunity before. So, it wasn't really on the radar. It definitely wasn't love at first sight. It wasn't even lust at first sight, you know. It was just, oh, this is Layla's donor. But then she tells me this story. It's interesting, though, that whole topic because two women have reached out to me recently that are in lesbian relationships and they've had donor children. So both of them reached out to me within three weeks of each other and their experience has been the same as each other but not the same as me. So they've both met the donor of their first child and ended up leaving their lesbian relationships for the donor and having another child. So each have gone on to have another child. One of them is now pregnant with a third child, the second with the donor, the first was with her partner. Undeniably, being the biological father to your child does give a guy a certain edge that others might lack. I know firsthand that there's a real new level of connection that exists with someone you've procreated with. Like if you can imagine all of these golden threads that tie two people together, common interests, shared friends, sex, living together, traveling together, sharing a child is like the ultimate golden thread. It can never be cut. It connects you forever. At the end of our interview, I'm all giggly and happy and just gushing over Amina's amazing story. I say the words lucky and impossible odds way too many times, and then then I make a misstep. I tell Amina that her story sounds like a modern-day fairy tale. Do you know what? I, I, just, I can't imagine ever looking at my life as a fairy tale. It's been an absolute fight, you know? a real battle emotionally. I don't think it ever necessarily felt like a fairy tale. It definitely felt like the start of something good. You know, people say fairy tale ending and I felt like life was just getting started in a lot of ways. That phase of my life where you become parents and go into a whole new era uh, started quite late, you know, when Layla was finally here and healthy and we got together. Fairy tale was absolutely not the right word. It irked Amina because it sort of erases all of this super hard work she's had to put in to get to where she is today. We've been through so many ups and downs and step families, blended families are not easy. So there's been so much love between us, but you have you're in the trenches with all of those things. You know, it's not, it hasn't been just a complete walk in the park, but the love has definitely remained. And I think our ability to communicate and to get through challenges together has only grown stronger and stronger. It was a sobering moment. I knew what Amina was saying to me. Her life had not been a fairy tale. She had to bury two baby boys. She had to farewell a marriage. She moved country. 
She had to battle heartbreak and complete unknowns to find her way to Layla and Scott. So, no, it wasn't a fairy tale. It was the brutal but beautiful seasons of life. She'd stuck out the winter and was now enjoying her spring. And I, for one, can't think of anyone who deserves it more. guys that's the end of the show if you would like to hear more from molly and lisa follow their podcast enmeshed link in the show notes i would also highly recommend following molly's tiktok she is absolutely hilarious look her up molly.kaufman that's with two f's and one n You can also read more from Amina's story. She's written a book called How I Met Your Father in 2016, which we've also linked in our show notes. Thank you, of course, to Molly, Lisa and Amina. You guys were so fabulous to hang out with. It always feels like a real gift when people are willing to share their life stories with me. So a massive thank you. And as for you, nice to hang out. Let's do it again sometime. And remember, it might just be a small story of one parent, but it's one huge tale of parent kind. I'm your host, Maggie Kelly, and I will be back with you next time. This has been a Super Real production. Parent Kind is produced by Julian Morgans, and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders, and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell, and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.